Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About to Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as youtube.com slash About to Review. You can stream the episode on your podcast platform of choice, on your podcatcher, if you will, uh, on all of them. So Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, all of the above. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreeview.com, which is where you can find full links to the show notes and guests. If you want to support the show, like I say every week, uh, you can pitch in a dollar directly through PayPal. That would be great. Or you can go on the Amazon wish list and pick something up for the studio. Due to the snowpocalypse, I am alone in the studio. Uh, yeah, nobody was able to come and join me for this week's episode because pretty much everybody is at home and eating their fresh produce that they cleared off of the shelves, which is just silly. Come on now, Seattle, get your stuff together. Uh, but yes, so this is going to be a solo show where I will be reviewing Alita Battle Angel, which is in theaters this weekend, and then two short docu-series or documentaries through Netflix's docu-series called Remastered. So I will be talking about Remastered, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, as well as Remastered, Who Killed Jam Master Jay. So all of that, plus some geek news, will be on this week's episode of About Tree View. So before we get into that, we'll get into the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. quick tangent on the snowpocalypse that I mentioned in last week's episode that I thought we were going to get, and we definitely got it. We got a bunch of snow here in Seattle, and it just shut everything down. What was silly is so many pictures on social media of produce racks at all of these stores, which are completely empty. Here's the thing, people. I grew up in eastern Washington, where we used to get feet of snow in the winter, and it was amazing. If you are preparing for some sort of snowpocalypse or snowmageddon, why are you buying fresh fruit? You buy canned goods. You buy frozen things. Things that will last. But no, it is a very Seattle, men Seattle attitude to be like, oh my gosh, we're going to be snowed in. I better make sure to get my organic Brussels sprouts. No, that is not what you want to do. But it was just, it was kind of funny to see that mad dash to the grocery store then again, I do really feel for the people who were in, in line in the stores for like an hour. That is a crazy amount of time. And the thing is like Seattle is built on a series of hills. So I get it. They do not really have the infrastructure to deal with things like this. And normally it only takes like two or three inches to shut the city down. This, we got a record amount of snow. So I get that this is very different, very unusual, but it was just... I was kind of amused by some of the things that people were were buying. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I was at home all weekend, just kind of holed up, so watching movies, uh, like the ones I will talk about in a little bit. 
So yeah, that was my just quick rant about the Snowmageddon 2019. Uh, thank you to everybody who listened to last week's episode. I realized that it dropped a little bit late uh, in the podcast feed. There have been some various technical issues. So hopefully that is all resolved and this will be dropping on time on Wednesday. All right. Now that the housekeeping is out of the way, right into the geek news. So there was a bunch of stuff that happened uh, this past week. One of which being a thing that was sent to me multiple times, um, Aladdin. Yes, the live-action Disney Aladdin movie dropped its first kind of real trailer. Uh, we got some snippets here and there, but this is the full trailer, or at least full as in we see most of the characters. We see Jafar, we see Aladdin, we see Jasmine, and boy do we see Genie, a.k.a. Will Smith. So, first, this movie is set to come out, uh, I think, is it this year? Yeah, May 24th. So, just a few weeks away, a couple months away. oof So, where do I begin? Um, first, Jafar's voice is not the Jafar's voice that we are used to. Those of us who grew up with Aladdin, Aladdin is one of my all-time favorite Disney movies. I love Aladdin. It means a lot to me. It hit me right at the right age. It was good to see another young brown boy on screen because I did not really see too much of that. As I have said before, it was Aladdin and Mowgli. That was about it. So Aladdin means a lot to me. So a lot of people sent this to me and wanted to get my opinions on it because they know how much it means to me. Jafar in the original, in the animated version, had that just deep resounding menace to his voice that this Jafar, at least in the trailer we saw so far, which the movie comes out on May 24th, so this is probably going to be it, is not that deep, resounding menace. So I will be interested to see in the movie if that is how he sounds during the duration, but it just it is a much higher timber in his voice, much higher register. So we will see. We will see how menacing he ends up doing through just his, his portrayal. Uh, we see Jasmine. We do not really get to hear her say anything or do anything, uh, but we see her. We see Aladdin. Uh, a couple issues with the core cast before I get into Genie. So first, I think it is great that they cast a multicultural ensemble for this. They went in the right direction and got some Middle Eastern actors, which is good. At the same time, I, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the, these are very fair-skinned folk in Agrabah, in ancient Middle East, whatever time period that is. That, that, I think, is going to rub some people the wrong way, and there is some justification in that. I still feel like there is still a hesitation to be like, hey, look. Dark-skinned people in the Middle East having adventures, having a good time. Enjoy it. I think that there is some colorism at play here. But we again, that this is an unknown situation as of right now. We have only seen a couple trailers. So, yeah, I, I, I'm interested, again, in how they do that. Uh, now, <laughs> to the other character. Genie, a.k.a. Will Smith. Now, we saw some pictures of him not blue 
a few months ago. Like Entertainment Weekly did a huge spread on on the behind the scenes and did some great shots of him in a weird outfit with weird hair and a weird goatee. And everybody freaked out. And he was like, don't worry, I'm going to be blue. And wow. Wow, is he blue. Uh, it is a big blue mess. It The CGI just does not even look finished. And it is it is to that point where, like when we saw Justice League, and we knew about the Henry Cavill mustache, and we knew that they had to do some crazy CGI, and we were expecting it. We did not know how it was going to happen, but we knew it was going to happen. Then, when we see Justice League, and it opens with this super bizarre, like, gummy-faced Henry Cavill when they had CGI'd the mustache off right out of the gate, and it was just jarring. Here, the first time we see the big blue genie, and it does not look finished. How does it not look finished when your movie comes out in, like, two months? So it looks weird, the syncing issue between the voice and the CGI, it it just looks sloppy and that that is bizarre like this movie has been in production for a while the only thing that I could kind of think is that due to the backlash of that photo shoot maybe they tweaked some more in post and kind of amped up his blueness and because of that there is some distortion some distillation or something distillation is not the right word distortion definitely is um of that look maybe that is it and we just have to give them the benefit of the doubt because we have only seen a few seconds of the genie in action so we will see may 24th uh how this comes out i'm sure between now and may 24th we are probably going to get like two more trailers because that is usually how these things work this is definitely not the last trailer we will be seeing because this was the special look that they dropped during this weekend's Grammy presentation. So, yikes. Uh, I, I I am worried about this film. But if it has the music, and if the actors do well in their respective roles, I can forgive a lot, because I, I will still find a reason to love it. But wow, I, I am a little bit worried. All right, uh, next thing. Speaking of worry and concern... So the Oscars, which are happening next week on the 24th, there there are some issues with the Oscars. So first of all, it is going to be three hours long, which most people knew and people were like, oh, it is going to be bloated, blah, blah, blah. The host is going to take too long. And then they were like, never fear, no host this year. And yes, that rhymed. So without a host, which I have talked about on episodes before, We do not really need a host, especially right now. This year, nobody wanted to touch that position. And they were like, as soon as I say yes, I am going to get ripped apart. You know what? Hard pass. I'm just not going to do it. So they decided to go hostless this year. It is still going to be three hours. What they decided to do for some reason, and this this is offensive. There is no other word for it. This is offensive. Four categories are going to be presented during commercial breaks. And that that is just wrong. Like most people who follow the awards circuit know that like the technical Oscars, the, you know, not necessarily the sound design, sound mixing, but some of the other 
super technical awards, those are issued the day before. So, and there's like a sit down dinner and they do an award ceremony that mainly is just for press and the producers. And it is an industry event more than a public event. Sure, that is fine. I still think that is kind of weird because then you take this huge chunk of award-winning films that nobody sees, that they put up clips of like the next day. Okay, that is weird. But this, the four categories that they chose to show during the commercial breaks, best cinematography, best film editing, best live action short, and best makeup and hairstyling. Say what you will about best live action short and best makeup and hairstyling, okay, like if people want to nitpick and they're like, oh, but not many people saw the live action shorts because they only do them at shorter programs. Okay, not not really an excuse, but okay. Best cinematography and best film editing, the two crucial things that make a film, how? How are you going to disrespect the industry and the nominees by putting those at the commercial break? And since then, the president of the Academy has said that, oh, well, it was misunderstood and we actually are going to show some of the speeches, but they're going to be cut in later. And we really just wanted to edit out the walks to and from the podium and this and stop, stop like that. There is no excuse for this at all. You have a three hour award ceremony. There is no and without a host, there is no reason why you could not have these four deserving categories accept their award and give their speech like every other category. It is bizarre. What the Academy truly needs is a good editor. If you cannot figure out how to take three hours and make these fit, you need an editor badly. Uh, Guillermo del Toro had a great tweet, and I forgot to, to clip the actual tweet, but he basically said, and I am paraphrasing, I will put a link to it in the description, that movies have been made without sound, without color, without actors, without dialogue. There has never been a movie made that does not have cinematography and editing. So, yeah, it just, it is, it is offensive and crazy. So, not quite sure how they're going to find a way to spin this. But come on now, Oscars, this has been a mess of the past, like, 12 months of kind of announcing the popular film and then not doing the popular film. And maybe we will do the popular film in 2020 to now this and going hostless. It just, it, the Academy is just floundering to try and stay relevant. This is not the way to do it. By alienating peers, by alienating people in the industry and outside of it. Like imagine a young filmmaker who is a budding cinematographer everybody's goal when they get into filmmaking, whether they want to admit it or not, there is a part of them that has an Oscar speech ready. With this, it is like, imagine being a young filmmaker and thinking that, oh, so all of the work that I put into editing this film, all of the work that I put into working with the DP and lighting and getting the cinematography beautiful, meh, the Academy does not really care. And I'm going to be getting my speech, giving my speech during a commercial break that then will be recut into the broadcast later. Nobody is going to rewatch the the whole broadcast just for those clips. So it is just rude and offensive. Uh, but yeah, that was my my rant on on the Oscars of 2019. On to 
happier slash bizarre news. So Hulu announced four new Marvel animated shows that they are working on, that they want to get to pilot, that they want to explore the opportunities for. So Hulu and Marvel Television have partnered to kind of produce these. The first one is going to be Howard the Duck. Um, <laughs> yes, that Howard the Duck that we kind of have seen in Guardians of the Galaxy, but also those of us who are old remember the live-action version, version, which is rough. It, it, is, it is hard to watch uh, these days. Hilarious, but hard to watch. So this new animated version is going to be written and directed by one of my favorite people, Kevin Smith, um, and Dave Willis. And Dave Willis, I mean, he did uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, Squidbillies, which I was never really a fan of, but he also has done a bunch of voiceover work for Adult Swim. Howard the Duck, as a fourth wall breaking, bizarre character with Kevin Smith and Dave Willis, I think could absolutely work. I think it could be really interesting and they could take it in some different directions. There were some really solid runs of the comic book with Howard the Duck and She-Hulk. So I definitely recommend those if you just want to read something bizarre. He was kind of, Howard the Duck was Deadpool before Deadpool in the sense where everything was just wacky. Everything was breaking the fourth wall. Everything was just outside of what you were used to reading a comic book. So that could be interesting. Another one is MODOK. Uh, MODOK, the giant floating, well, yeah, hovering head that is a machine. Stan, what is that acronym? Uh, like mental organism designed only for killing. Is that mental? Yeah, I think that is it. MODOK is a bizarre character as well. This is going to be helmed, this animated, animated one is going to be helmed by Jordan Bloom and Patton Oswalt. Love Patton Oswalt. I think that could also be fun. And they're also doing Hitmonkey and Tigra and Dazzler. Tigra and Dazzler being one cartoon. So I, I am all for it. I think it is just like we're in this golden age of comic book properties just going out there and being like, sure, how about we just do some animated stuff that may or may not be targeted towards adults or that type of, of humor. Uh, with Howard the Duck, easily it could be. With the other ones, not quite sure. But they're just like, why not? So because these are animation, though, we are not going to be seeing these for a while. Especially because Kevin Smith is just about to start filming Jay and Silent Bob uh, reboot, which is a sequel to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back about them stopping a movie. And now this one is they're trying to stop the reboot of the movie. I, just go for it, Kevin Smith. You know I'm going to watch it. So, but yeah, so this, all four of these shows are probably not going to hit until probably 2020, not only because it is animated and takes a lot of time with voiceover, but people are busy. So we will see that probably next year. Uh, of of bizarre filmmaking, look at that segue. That, that was art. That was a decent segue. Uh, there is a filmmaker out there who made one of the most bizarre films that everybody loves, even if they hate it, uh, Tommy Wiseau. Wiseau. Uh, from The Room, of course. A movie that I have seen countless times. Uh, my friend Robin Paris was in the original. She has a hilarious web series called The Room Actors, Where Are They Now? Uh, definitely check that out. Big plug for Robin. So Tommy Wiseau, 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 
<laughs> who knows where he is from, so who knows how it's actually pronounced, uh, has a new movie coming out called Big Shark. Uh, I will give people three guesses as to what this movie is about. You have three seconds. Three, two, one. Yeah, it is about a big shark. Uh, all we got was a trailer that is like a minute long. So there's this micro trailer with, of course, his buddy uh, <laughs> from from the room, Greg Sestero. Um, this film, this teaser trailer that we got is, it, it, well, it does not make sense. We get nothing of the story other than Greg Sestero is some sort of womanizer and he gets slapped and the sound that the slap makes is not a sound that any slap has ever sounded like in the history of the world. So that is weird. And then they walk out in the street, water starts flooding. Tommy, in his Tommy way, says, oh no, water. <laughs> and then suddenly there are like four feet of water. Somebody gets eaten by a shark behind them. Come to find out, this is kind of a concept trailer. He has not made the film yet. So this is his way of being like, so hey, uh, here's the trailer for this film. You want to see it? Because I want to make it. Give me money to make it. Only Tommy can do something like this. And I know that I'm going to watch this just because it is, it just, it looks insane. So good for you, uh, Tommy for doing Big Shark and Greg Sestero, of course. They are best friends, and they have been best friends for a long time, continue to work together. Wow. So Big Shark, look forward to that if it actually gets made. If not, just watch the trailer, and you can pretty much get the entire movie. Uh, a movie that I am legitimately excited for to see a sequel to, Stephen Chow from Kung Fu Hustle fame and Shaolin Soccer announced that Kung Fu Hustle 2 will be coming out. Like, it is officially in the works. Uh, he announced that he will be directing and possibly cameo in the film. Uh, he said that it would not really be a sequel, but more of like a spiritual follow-up that takes place in the modern day versus when the first one took place. Uh, the movie came out in 2004, and I forget what year it took place, but Kung Fu Hustle is a tremendous martial arts movie. That some people are like, oh, yeah, but it's a comedy and it's this and this. It sure is. But watching it as a pure martial arts movie, the cinematography, the fight choreography, the way that they blend the CGI is pretty phenomenal, especially for 2004. Like, this is basically what a Dragon Ball Z movie should look like. It has the mix of comedy, great action. So Kung Fu, Kung Fu Hustle 2, super excited uh, for that. And... Another movie that I am interested in that, I mean, I, I'm on board for, but I, I am waiting to see kind of what they announce it is going to be. That sounds weird. Uh, but Breaking Bad, they announced that they are going to be making a movie that is going to be a sequel to the series. How that plays out based on what happened at the end of the series that is what we have yet to find out and what they're justifiably being a little coy about and not really going into too much detail. I get it. It is still really early. But what is interesting with this is they actually are going to drop this on Netflix first and then put it on AMC, which is completely backwards as to how Breaking Bad, one of the reasons that Breaking Bad became so popular 
And Vince Gilligan even admitted that. He said that it was because of Netflix that the series had such a long life. He was like, they, he said, uh, his actual quote was, I think Netflix, Netflix kept us on the air. Gilligan said in his speech when he was talking about this, not only are we standing up here, I don't think our show would have even lasted beyond season two. It's a new era in television and we're, we've been very fortunate to reap the benefits. So he gets it. He truly understands the Netflix model and how it can coincide with the traditional TV market and with the traditional movie market. So I think that is super on top of things and just clever to be like, okay, Netflix saved us when it was on. Because of that, we know the power that Netflix has and the people viewing this are invested. So drop it on Netflix and then to Amazon. Super smart move. Ending the geek news with two horror films or horror projects, I should say, because neither of them are films yet, but they have been announced. So Jason Blum of Blumhouse Productions. So they actually are tackling a remake of The Invisible Man. For those keen-eared listeners, you have been hearing me talk about the dark universe that they tried to get off the ground for years. They tried it with The Mummy, and it failed spectacularly, but like they rolled out all of the actors and announced all of the movies before they even released the first one. That is a risky move, my friends, and it backfired horribly. Then the whole Dark Universe just got dropped. They were like, okay, nope, we're just going to do standalone movies, and that never really happened. Now, you get somebody like Jason Blum, who I have talked about multiple times, who is great with low-budget horror ideas and horror concepts. That is what you need to do something like this. If you are actually looking to build a, a dark universe or universe of these old movie monsters, the universal monsters that were really huge 60 years ago, why just out of the gate announce all these projects and all these stars before you even know if people like it? So he announced that he is going to be working on The Invisible Man, which would be, I think, a, a very unique take on it. With The last version, if you want to call it that, we got was Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. And it was bad. It was, it was real bad. So with this, if they go that more traditional route of how creepy and how scary this would actually be in the real world, and some of the practical effects they did in the original Invisible Man, they still hold up. Watching those Universal Monster movies, it is fascinating how many of how much of the technology and practical effects still work. So I think Blum is a good fit for this because he recognizes the benefit of a small budget to be like, okay, I do not need $200 million to make The Invisible Man. Make it smaller, make it creepy, and we will be on board. Uh, Lexi Alexander, the director of Punisher Warzone, among other things, who she is tough. She is great. I, I am a big supporter of Lexi Alexander. Arguably, she gave us the best version of the Punisher that we have seen on the big screen in a movie that not many people saw, which was Punisher Warzone. So she even talked about how she has kind of gone to the studio and was like, hey, what if I did a mummy reboot? And again, when you watch Punisher Warzone, she knows how to do gritty 
somewhat low budget action. I say somewhat because like that was still an expensive movie, but it was not the mummy expensive. The Tom Cruise, the mummy expensive. So with her being like, I have ideas for the mummy. How about we try and work something out? I want them to go in that, that direction of smaller independent ish directors and be like, give us your take because that is going to give you such a unique perspective on these classic monsters, these monster stories that all of us know. So I'm excited for The Invisible Man. I think Lexi Alexander could do a really unique take on The Mummy if that ends up happening. But right now, we know that Jason Blum at least is in talks to do The Invisible Man. Another horror uh, story, which this is a horror story for multiple reasons. One, the movie itself is going to be a horror film. Two, the concept is a horror idea. And three, this whole thing is just scary and dumb. But uh, Aquaman, as successful as it was, it made nearly a billion dollars. They're, they're in talks to do a spinoff just about the trench. Yes, those creepy fish people that we saw for five minutes in the movie they now want to make an entire movie about the trench. Um, why? Why? Like, th th this makes no sense. I get wanting to explore the DC universe and the world of DC, I think, is what they're calling it. And branching out and doing fun movies. Like Aquaman was fun for some people. Like Shazam looks fun. Wonder Woman is probably going to be lighter and funny. I get wanting to explore those areas. And then you want to switch gears and do a horror movie about a, a group of creatures that we saw for five minutes in a movie that was not really about them. Now, granted, that part of the film is one of the most interesting as far as lighting design and the look of things. But it was also part of the movie that made the least amount of sense at all. So is this going to be an origin story of like the fall of Atlantis? How they mutated into these creatures, which never got explained. Is this going to be a current story? Like, I, I, I just do not understand this at, at all. But James Wan wants to make it and he can now go to the studio and be like, hey, that last movie I did, it made you guys nearly a billion dollars. So... Okay, I mean, this is even a recent enemy in Aquaman stories. They These creatures, the trench creatures, only came out a few years ago. I think it was in a storyline in like 2011, 2010 that they made their first appearance. But now they want to do a whole movie. Ugh, okay. Uh, it's not sure about that at all. But yeah, so definitely a mixed bag of things that I am excited for, things that I am nervous about, things that I just am not excited about at all i.e. the trench. Uh, but the rest of it should be interesting. All right, moving on to the movie reviews. So the first movie on the docket is Alita Battle Angel. Now, this is directed by Robert Rodriguez slash James Cameron, uh, who also wrote the screenplay. Uh, I say slash James Cameron because he definitely had a heavy hand in this, not just on the technical side of things, but when we watched an interview with them and with the panel discussion of the filmmakers, it was pretty evident that the Cameron definitely had a, a hand in in the direction, which is fine. Uh, the cast: so Rosa Salazar is Alita, Christopher Walt is Doctor Dyson Ido, Jennifer Connelly is Sharon, 
Mahershala Ali is Vector. Ed Screen is in there as the Pan. Jackie Earl Haley is unrecognizable as Grushka, this gigantic mech cyborg. Uh, and then Kian Johnson is Hugo. The rest of the people, um, yeah, there there's a big cast in this, including people that we see for like two minutes that are not in the rest of the movie. Jai Courtney, we see him as a champion of motorball in this film. He literally has like two lines and that was it. So it's like, were you just on set one day? And they were like, uh, we need a big guy who we can put a bunch of stuff on and then layer some CGI. Uh, Jai, yeah, he's on the studio a lot. Just bring him in here. I feel like, especially somebody like Jai Courtney, who is not known for doing super, super short cameos like that, there was something on the cutting room floor that had more of him in it. But regardless, so Alita Battle Angel tells the story of young Alita, who is a completely broken and mangled cyborg that is found in the scrapyard by Dr. Dyson Ito, who then puts her back together, gives her a new body, and starts to find out, or rather she starts to find out, who she really is, where she came from, and how it is connected to this kind of scorched earth post-apocalyptic world that we are a part of. So, and through that, she, of course, you know, has a love interest with, with Hugo, and they go on wacky adventures. This this is a, a manga, manga slash anime adaptation that surprised me. It surprised me in a couple different ways. One of which is that it actually followed the anime from 1993 at least, which was the kind of first anime movie they did published or not published, produced by uh, Manga Entertainment, which did like Ninja Scroll, Vampire Hunter D., uh, Ghost in the Shell, Pat Labor, a bunch of stuff. If you grew up an anime kid in the 90s, that manga symbol with the fire and the manga in white, like that was a big part of my my youth when I was getting into anime. This takes that movie and almost does a beat-for-beat remake of it. And in a way that actually felt incredibly heartfelt and genuine. That surprised me. It really did. Because Ghost in the Shell, granted, Scarlett Johansson is incredibly problematic for a few different reasons, but it looked like Ghost in the Shell. A lot of these filmmakers can get the look of the anime adaptations, but really telling the story and really going into what makes this such a beloved character or franchise or icon, this is the rare one where... I was I was invested. I knew the story. I knew where it was going, at least parts of it. They added a few things, but I knew where it was going, but it was still heartfelt. Like it, it still felt emotional. And that is something that a lot of these adaptations I never really felt before. So that definitely was a huge kudos. A big part of that is Rosa Salazar. Her version of Alita is incredible. And yes, a lot of people have been making fun of this movie, uh, me included, when it because we were supposed to get this movie a year ago, and they just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. People have been criticizing her visual look, Alita's visual look, since the very first promo images, because she has these gigantic eyes, which you've seen a lot of anime, but she is the only one that has them in this version, so people were just tearing it apart. They actually explain it in the film in a smart way. Her 
exploration of her past and where she comes from and this group of people that she is a part of. And I, I'm not going to too many spoilers, even though this movie came out, the original 1993, the manga has been around forever, since like 1990. But still, they explain it in the movie because this group of people that she came from all look like that. That was smart. That was really smart because even in this post-apocalyptic world, she is different than every other cyborg and every other human that has cybernetic implants. And so in the movie, they were like, this is why. And she looks like that because they look like this. Smart. Like that was kind of a get out of jail free card that Robert Rodriguez or James Cameron, whoever had the idea to tie in that look to something different, something off world, something that, that challenges your perception was really smart. So that, that was a smart piece of filmmaking um, on their behalf. Another reason that Rosa was so compelling, and James Cameron talked about this, that it was not necessarily the motion capture, you know, of some of these other performances that we see in fully CGI characters. This was performance capture. So much so when you look at the behind the scenes, like on YouTube, of Rosa performing the the act, whatever it is she is doing, and you you can actually watch the layers that they put on from the, the all of the dots, and then it goes to the CGI mapping, then it goes to the rendering, then it goes to the painting, then it and you can watch all of that. When you watch the final performance side by side with Rosa's performance, it is eerie how perfect it is. And this technology is only getting better. Of course, we have seen this, you know, with Gollum, with Andy Serkis. I mean, even so much with like Benedict Cumberbatch as Smaug, you know, when he is crawling on the mat with all of the dots on his face. This keeps getting better, and this is the best. Oh, actually, wait. No, I take that back. As soon as I said it, Planet of the Apes is still, I think, one step, one step or two above this because of the texture of the face and of the hair. So I take that back. Planet of the Apes is still the mark. It is still the best. But this is just is phenomenal. Like, it is truly phenomenal. And what you get when you focus on the performance capture like that is moments where she is eating an orange. And every little line, every dot, every pore on her face has been mapped out and then made into CGI. It, it truly is a, is a performance like nothing else. So that was just really incredible, and it helped that these characters, all these cybernetic characters, had weight. Like, it felt like they were real. Not just in the visual, you know, performances, but the problem with a lot of these super CGI-heavy films is nothing feels heavy. Uh, the Hobbit trilogy of movies that they did recently is a perfect example of that. You have hobbits falling down these mine shafts and literally bouncing off of rocks... And they land at the bottom, an, a troll lands on them, and they make a joke about it. What? No, no. Yes, that happened in the books, sure. But it just—it did not have weight. It did not have emotional weight or did not have physical weight in the world that we are watching. This does. Everything from when Alita first like smashes through a table in this medical bay to when she is fighting other characters to when they go on like this 20-minute rollerball sequence, which was not in the original, at least not in the original manga or original anime. It was in like books three and four of the manga. 
So, I mean, yes, it was in there, but they spend a lot of time in rollerball in this version. And it looked great. Like, the action was just super frenetic, well shot. But it, yeah, the biggest thing about it, the biggest compliment I can give to such a CGI-laden film that this is, is it just, it felt heavy. And you need that. Or it just, it just does not work. So that was really cool. Um, and again, it was, it was surprisingly heartfelt. Christopher Waltz, who plays essentially her, her surrogate father, you know, as she, as he found her and then built her a body and brought her to life, back to life, as it were. You feel that. You feel this connection they have. There are a couple characters where we do not, not necessarily feel as connected, but we never really get the time and the investment into their characters and backstory. That being said, the the ensemble that they put together is really well balanced. So everything from Rosa to Jennifer Connelly, who we see who has different motivations, and she is kind of running this rollerball league all so that she can get to Zalem, which is this floating, or kind of tethered, I should say, city in the sky that everybody on the ground wants to get to. It is the utopia. It is the dream. But the only way to get there is if you win at rollerball. Okay. Sure, like that is kind of the conceit of the movie, but even like even in those interactions, like it is it is balanced and it makes sense. Now, to my biggest problem with this film, and I I mean I I have to do it, the ending. As I said about Dark Universe earlier, when you roll out actors, when you roll out titles of films, and you roll out directors, and be like, this is what we want to do. Before you have proven a success in your current project, do not set up sequels because it just, it gets very frustrating and it can be very disappointing if they do not end up going down that road. This movie ends, I will not say how it ends, but the ending is frustrating. You get amped and it definitely is a powerful ending, but the whole time I had a feeling it was going to do this. And it did, and it just reminded me of so many anime, so much anime that I have watched or manga that I have read, things like Claymore or Shigurui, where the ending is just so unsatisfying that it almost leaves a bad taste in your mouth, and you have to remind yourself of the good things that you just watched. So, yeesh, that, that, that bothers me. I get what they are doing, and I get what James Cameron is doing. The problem is that this movie took like four years to make. James Cameron is going to be off making Avatar movies for like 50 years. So even if he wanted to do a second one of these, which he wanted to do a trilogy, he talked about that in one of the early interviews, without knowing if this is a success, that is, that is a tall order. So uh, yeah, overall, the visuals were fantastic. Uh, Ed Screen as, as Zapan, who is pretty much just a face and the cybernetic body like it it looks incredible like i really cannot talk about the visuals enough and how they were able to how they were able to pull things off and make it feel so organic and real uh yeah jack Earl haley again he was good it was it was almost impossible to see him but and everyone else was solid uh music was good action was good so my official rating for Alita Battle Angel, if this is your first time listening, there are three choices when it comes to ratings. Good, bad, or ugly. No stars, no letter grades, nothing. A good film is something you would recommend, 
A bad film is something you do not regret seeing, but not really something that is on the top of your recommendation list. Ugly, avoid at all costs. So Alita Battle Angel, I definitely give a good to. Like this is a solid movie, which I was worried about because this is an anime adaptation, a manga adaptation, but they crushed it. Like this was very, very impressive. I would, I saw this in um, IMAX 3D, you know, here in town. Other than the 3D glasses pinching my brain, which they just are uncomfortable always, the 3D was great. Like, this was just a very, very impressive movie. And Robert Rodriguez, I have been a fan of his forever. So Desperado is another movie that means a lot to me. So yeah, super impressed with Alita Battle Angel. Now to these two short uh, documentaries. Um, I'm only going to spend a few minutes on these because, yeah, they are only like 60-minute documentaries as part of this Netflix docu-series called Remastered. So the first one actually came out in December, but I just got a chance to watch it this weekend because I had some time on my hands. So it is Remastered, Who Killed Jam Master J? Now, Jam Master J was the DJ for a little, you know, hip-hop group called Run DMC. Uh, in the 80s, he pioneered so many things. I mean, he kind of came up from the system that was just kind of and not necessarily learn. Well, yeah, still learning from the old school. So DJ Cool Herc, you know, all of that into turntablism as we kind of started to know it in the 80s. Jam Master Jay was there. So Run DMC, you cannot talk about the history of hip hop without talking about Run DMC. You know, whether people have issues with them or they were too commercial or whatever, which, okay. Like, so they were the first group to have a, a shoe deal with Adidas. Okay, but it is weird, like this revisionist history of people like, oh, Run DMC is corny. So, like, look at the history of hip hop. There are always some corny folks involved, but to say that Run DMC is corny because of what they were doing at the time when they're revolutionizing that industry, get out of here. Uh, <laughs> so, Jam Master Jay uh, died in a really mysterious way in 2002. He was only 37. And I say it was mysterious because he was killed in a recording studio that he, he owned, he was a part of. There were six people in this recording studio. There were cameras in this recording studio. Here we are, 16 years later, nobody has been convicted. Nobody has gone to trial for the killing of Jam Master Jay. So this mini documentary goes into the players and who was around and you know, what was going on at the time. And Jam Master Jay, like he, watching this really opened my eyes to the person that he was outside of the music. I knew, I knew the music and I know about him, but really going into the history of no matter where he was going in their career. And he was always trying to evolve, always trying to find the new thing to kind of keep going. He was always giving back to the community, always giving back to family that was amazing to see because when, you know, the L.A. rap scene first started to kind of break through and his style, the Run DMC style of hip hop was kind of going by the wayside. And that was when people first started to view it as corny because it was not as hard as everything was coming out, like Ice Cube, Dre, Snoop, all of them. And then they're like, oh, Run DMC. Yeah, those old guys. But he was constantly trying to reinvent his sound and who he was. 
So it was just, it was a fascinating documentary. I definitely recommend it for people who grew up listening to hip hop because it does give some insights into other things that were going on. And it also ties into Tupac and Biggie and then Jam Master J. Like these titans in this industry, the titans, these luminaries of hip hop. And yet there are still so many mysteries around how they died. It is it is fascinating and depressing uh, to watch this and realize that this is not what I will talk about here in a couple minutes. You know, Sam Cooke, you know, who died in 1963. Nope, this was 2002. And nobody knows really what happened. There were witnesses. Somebody got shot in the same room as Jam Master J and nothing happened. So really interesting. Uh, but yeah, so it was remastered Who Killed Jam Master J. There's not much, really much more I can go into it because, I mean, it kind of says it right there, who killed him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this this docu-series, this episode of the docu-series definitely gets a good from me. The next one that just came out actually recently is remastered The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Now, this is about Sam Cooke, the soul singer, you know, from the 40s and 50s into the 60s. Like, he died in 1964, but he was still making music all the way up into that point. And even after he died, similar to Tupac, uh, they released two albums and some singles. I think one album and two singles. After he passed away, this Sam Cooke, you might not know the name. Go to YouTube, just pull up Sam Cooke song. Whatever song comes up, click play. You are going to know that song. I mean, it just, you are going to. It is so ingrained in our popular culture. Uh, you send me, a change is going to come, wonderful world, chain gang, twisting the night away. I mean, just hit after hit after hit. So this is another artist who was blending politics and race and all of these other issues in the 50s and 60s during the Jim Crow era, during the civil rights era. And we come to find out in this documentary, I mean, again, it, it, it goes different directions, but in the documentary, you kind of see how all of those are interconnected and how that very easily could have led to his death. Because back then, politics, music, rebellion, civil rights in the 50s and 60s, I mean, it was, it was a rough time to be that outspoken, as outspoken as he was. I also did not realize, one of the things I learned while watching this, how many people, not just were connected to him, how many people grew up together, like in Chicago, where he was at that time. One of his friends was Lou Rawls, who he was, who was like in a rival gospel group. Uh, he went to the same high school that Nat King Cole went to. Aretha Franklin, like the church that he went to is right down the street from hers. Quincy Jones grew up with them. Smokey Robinson, Dionne Warwick, Jim Brown. Like it is, it is insane watching this and realizing how many of these people were connected that we all know about, but to realize that they were in one spot for a time is crazy. He also, Sam Cooke had affiliations with Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And of course, at that time, those were two very polarizing identities with very different ideologies. And so as he kind of started to go more towards one, 
Then the other, and I will not say which one, you have to watch the documentary for that, it started going towards one towards one more than the other. That raised a lot of questions with his base, you know, with the people who grew up listening to him when he was part of the Soulsters and all of these, you know, smaller groups. And then he has this platform, this global megastar, and traveling through the Jim Crow South and still having to go through the back door. Like, it is, this is a brutal documentary to watch. And it is short. Again, this is only like 65 minutes or something. But I highly, highly recommend this, especially if you grew up listening to soul music like I did, or if you just want to know more about soul music. This is basically a soul music 101 uh, documentary. So remastered the killing, the two killings of Sam Cooke. And that is an allusion to both the man and his legacy that he left because his death is also very mysterious. Nobody was convicted and it was this kind of justifiable homicide, but the story does not really match up and the people involved are really sketchy. So it gets pretty weird. But yeah, the two killings of Sam Cooke, absolutely a good, check that out. Uh, right away, it is on Netflix, so why not? Uh, okay, so that actually wraps it up for this week's episode of the About to Review podcast. Uh, I talked a bunch about the geek news. Alita Battle Angel got a good, and then the two remastered episodes of the docu-series on Netflix, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke and Who Killed Jam Master J, both got a good. So yeah, check those out. Uh, make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About to Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. YouTube.com slash about to review and also about to review.com has full links to the show notes and guests. You can support the show from that same website by clicking the support tab and going to PayPal or Amazon. Uh, yeah, pick up something for the studio as it gets colder here in Seattle. <laughs> this is this is my my cough. <laughs> so cold. Uh, you can pick up some tea. Some of my favorite tea is on Amazon. It is traditional medicinal traditional medicinals. Uh, lemon, echin lemon echinacea throat coat. It is amazing. It is my favorite tea. As it is cold here in the winter, you can pick some of that up for me and send it, and that would be incredible. Uh, as for next week's episode, so January, February are kind of slow. They're kind of rough, so not quite sure which movies are going to be uh, coming out this weekend that I have not already seen, but I might check those out. I might also do a Getting to Know You, uh, That Guy Named John edition, which I have never really done. So I might put up a little thing, and if you have any questions that you want to ask me, I might answer those on next week's episode. I think that could be pretty fun. So that will be it for this week's episode of About to Review. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, that wraps it up, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a